proceed forward with the with scripture, assuming uh, seeing as nobody has anything else on their heart. We're going to take our our scripture reading this morning from the third ta- chapter of Genesis, Genesis chapter three, uh, and verse sixteen. That's the only verse we're going to use this morning. And as we stated uh, prior to uh, prior to that, it was Mother's Day, and we certainly wish uh, every mother happy a happy Mother's Day here today. Uh, and we want to look at the origins of motherhood this morning and the characteristics that are in some of the characteristics, because there's so many characteristics that are involved in motherhood. Um, I, I don't know that I could go through and pick out each and every instance of it. Um, maybe I can make it a year long sermon series, but <laughs> there's a lot involved is basically what I'm saying. It's not uh, it's not as uh uh, it's not uh, just a, 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 an open and shut. It's not like doing any other occupation. It's a special occupation that God created. And, of course, we go back and we look at creation, and God has created Adam and Eve, and they haven't procreated yet, so there's no young. And uh, and, and that procreation, the, the method of that procreation, I believe, personally believe, and I know it believe because the Scriptures are going to tell us that, but it changed. Uh, that method uh, changed uh, as a result of them eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so we're going to look here uh, for just a moment at, uh, at what the Scriptures say uh, in verse 16 of Genesis chapter 3. And unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. And, uh, and that's the only verse we're looking at. Or we're, and so we look at this, at this verse of Scripture. And, of course, we know what happened prior to, right? Satan tempted Eve, and Eve uh, ate of the fruit of the tree first. Um, but the, as, as the Scriptures also tell us, that Eve, while she was in transgression, but she was deceived. Um, Adam, however, was not deceived. Adam, uh, it's been speculated that, you know, over the years and over the generations that, you know, at Eve took the fruit of the tree and that she ate it. And some speculate that she gave it to Adam and that to eat and that he didn't realize he was eating of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. But that's just incorrect. Adam was not Deceived. Adam knew exactly what he was doing. The scriptures tell us that Adam was not deceived. The Jews, if you go back and you study the, the, what the Jews believed as it pertained to Adam, the woman was deceived, the man was not deceived. That's what they believed, that's what they taught, they still teach that to this day. And so, and that's what scriptures teach, uh, that Adam was not deceived. Adam willfully ate of that tree. But nevertheless, even though the woman was in but nevertheless, even though the woman was deceived, she was still in transgression. And so this is where the change comes in, doesn't it? And God takes the, the role of motherhood and the process of delivering a child, uh, and he makes it much more painful. And now we sometimes joke around and we'll, we, we'll, we'll say it, you know, that you know, we'll get a toothache or... Uh, I jokingly told uh, my wife when I had dry socket and four teeth that it was worse than childbirth. And, and so you understand when you say that, that's tongue in cheek 
Because in the human experience, there's probably not a more acute pain than, the, than that of childhood or childbirth, sorry. What, in a, what a woman experiences during, the, during childbirth is, is so prolonged of a painful event that it stands alone in creation. You understand what I'm saying here? I'm trying what I'm trying to get. Now I want to use a I want to use an article here because I got into this thinking, this thought, and this thought came to my mind. Now I know the answer to the question. The answer to the question is because she ate of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, right? But the scientists want to look and they ask this question, and this is and they're going to go back and they're going to look at a study. I believe it was from 1999. But the question of the, the article is written, why is human childbirth so painful? And so it's going to look at it. And so some of the things that are in this, though, are really quite, uh, are really quite interesting to, uh, to consider. Um, they, they follow 2,500 full-term births, and the average labor was nine hours. They juxtapose that with the average time that another primate was in labor, so a monkey or an ape, right? And theirs was two hours. And so that this is a quandary for them because they can't figure out. They're trying to understand why, from an evolutionary perspective, why would humans be designed to have such a prolonged childbirth? Well, the answer is that they probably didn't in the beginning. They probably weren't originally designed to have that. That came about and changed based upon what happened in the Garden of Eden. And God's, God told the woman here, and he says, I will multiply thy sorrow. So if you think about it from that standpoint, what the woman goes through in childbirth is four times greater than anything else, than any other mammal that experiences in the world. And, and so from that standpoint, you can see how God multiplies the, the, the pain. And when it says there that I will multiply thy sorrow, it's talking about I'm going to multiply the pain that you're going to experience in pregnancy. Because it's, mothers know this way better than I do. And probably, <laughs> I'm probably getting over my skis here a little bit. But they know that way more than I do. It's not just at childbirth where the pain starts. It's from, it, it's from really, what would you say, ladies, about the first, first trimester or before? Before. Some, some, with some, nausea starts immediately, doesn't it? And I know for Amy, the nausea never stops. So the things that go along with it are the most trying, the most enduring, the most pain. That you've experienced in the in the human family, and so what's crazy to think about, and this is and this slaps in the face of of what our of what so much of our society thinks of motherhood nowadays, because nowadays they, they exalt career over motherhood, but nothing brings more joy than motherhood. Well, except when they hit teenage years. <laughs> When they hit teenage years, it's I don't I don't know my mom I don't know that my mom had a lot of fun when I was a teenager. <laughs> but think about this: it's something that was longed after, wasn't it? 
And if it was, and it became a point of an issue if they couldn't conceive a child or couldn't bear a child. And so we're going to look in First Samuel, and we're going to look at Hannah. And Hannah is here, and Hannah, uh, she is uh, her husband Elkanah. He loves her. He takes care of her, even though she hasn't borne him any children. And uh, and and so she has this great bitterness of soul because she can't conceive a child. And so here in verse ten of first chapter of First Samuel, it says, "And she was in bitterness of soul, and she prayed to the Lord, and she wept sore, and she vowed a vow, and she said, O Lord of hosts, if Thou wilt indeed look upon the Look on the affliction of thine handmaid and remember me and not forget thine handmaid, but will give unto me, un, give unto thine handmaid a man child. Then will I give him unto the Lord all the days of his life, and there shall no razor come upon his head. Uh, Hannah wanted a child more than anything, didn't she? She wanted a child more than anything. And and wanting to see that child born, and you think about all the painful aspects that the mother goes through, carrying the child, delivering the child, raising the child, uh, and in Hannah's case, longing to be a mother. Uh, the last thing, the most regretted thing that can happen, and I can speak to this a little bit, but not from me, my personal experience, but my grandmother, I can speak to the things that she's told me about uh, as it pertains to this next section here, and that is that the last thing that a mother ever, ever wants to have to do. Now, a father doesn't want to have to do this either, but there's a special bond between a mother and a child, and if you say there isn't, then you're fooling yourself. The very last thing a mother ever wants to have to do is to bury a child before she gets buried. Hagar didn't want to see the death of Ishmael, did she? She was out in the wilderness of Paran and she'd run out of water. And she'd put Ishmael under a bush. And we can look at this and say, that's the bondservant, and it is the bondservant, but you know what? God still dealt with her, didn't he? Here's what she says in the 16th verse of Genesis 21. And she went and she sat down over against him and a good ways off, uh, as it were a bow shot, for she said, let me not see the death of the child. See, even Hagar, even though we can look at her now and say uh, that allegorically she wasn't uh, free, um, and she wasn't free literally, uh, she was uh, the handmaid of Sarah, the last thing she wanted to see was the death of Ishmael. Moses' mother is the exact same way, right, down in Egypt. Moses' mother, she, she had Moses in secret, and she kept him hid for three months, but once a kid gets big enough and rambunctious enough, <laughs> you can't hide him forever, can you? The Pharaoh, Pharaoh had given a decree that all of the uh, the males, all the Hebrew babies that were male, were to be were to be killed. And so, what does she do in the in the uh, uh, in the second chapter in the third verse of Exodus, Exodus two three? And when she could no longer hide him, she took him for an uh, she took for him an ark of bulrushes and daubed it with slime and with pitch and put the child therein and she laid it in the flags by the river's bank. Now, I don't know that she knew what was going to happen to Moses after she did that. 
But don't you know the maternal instincts of Pharaoh's own daughter were kicked in when she saw him. She took him up and she adopted him and he was raised in Pharaoh's house. David was moved to compassion when when uh, when Rizpah's two sons were chosen to be uh, sent to the the Gibeonites, who were descendants of the Amorites, who Saul had tried to slay, and they were uh, they were waging they were threatening war. And, and as an act of appeasement, David had sent them uh, because they were of the house of Saul to answer for what Saul had done to them, and they hung them. And so Rizpah here, we read about her experience uh, in Second Samuel chapter. 21 and Rizpah, the daughter of, of Asia, uh, or Asia, uh, uh, took sackcloth and spread it upon the rock from the beginning of the harvest until winter, uh, or until water dropped down on them from heaven. And so she sat there for a prolonged period of time until finally the rain started falling, started in the dry, and finally once it started raining, that's how she stayed there that long in mourning over the death of her two children. Uh, and uh, and that moved David to compassion as it pertains to her. Uh, and so and it says, And suffereth neither the birds of the air uh, to rest on on them by day, uh, nor the beasts of the field by night, and so she watched over. She she watched over their bodies even after they were dead. And then this one we we're very familiar with, uh, Jeremiah chapter thirty-one verse fifteen. Rachel, weeping for her children, refused to be comforted because they were not. The last thing the mother wants to see is that. I can remember my grandmother, she had one that was stillborn. And uh, and she would still talk about her right up until uh, she got to where she couldn't really remember. But she mar- she buried her. She buried uh, her, uh, her one of her older. She buried Pat and she buried Charlotte. Uh, and, uh, and so... Uh, she she experienced a lot of loss uh, over the course of her life. Of course, all of her family members, but it was different every time one of her children passed away. That you, that's tied into one of the warnings given in the day of the destruction of Jerusalem. Don't you know that? Matthew chapter 24 verse 19 and woe unto them that are with child and to them that give suck in those days why because you're going to have to make a decision aren't you because it's much harder to flee if you're carrying another person and you're going to have to make a decision if you're with child do we do I flee in which case he said, pray not your, your flight be in the winter because what, was, what, what would probably happen? The child would probably die. Or you wouldn't be able to run away with the child. You'd have to leave the child to fend for itself. Well, that wouldn't turn out very well for the child either. And so that's why he says, woe unto them that are with child and to them that give suck in those days. Because the, the instinct of a mom is to protect, isn't it? Mo- mothers have an instinctual protective instinct. Uh, 
Mothers see their kids going toward the electric socket and their instinct is to, to run and to stop them before they stick the fork in it. And the dad, as long as he knows that the electrical shock won't be that bad, is going to be more apt to step back and say, wait, 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 give it just a second. <laughs> Let them learn a lesson. <laughs> I've heard some refer to the bicycle generation, uh, bicycle helmet generation, as prompted by mothers. <laughs> They're risk averse, aren't they? Uh, just by nature, they're risk averse. M- men are much more apt, typically, to take on risk. That's not to say that that's always the case, but just generally speaking. We see this protectionary aspect of mothers. First Kings chapter three verse twenty six. And then spake the woman whose uh, who's the living who, whose the living child was to the king, for her bowels yearned for her son. Of course, this is before Solomon, and you had the woman who had lost her child. She laid claim to the other lady's child, and so they came before Solomon, and and the uh, Solomon said, "Here's what we're gonna do: uh, take the baby and just split it in half, and give half the baby to one and half the baby to the other, and." Uh, and the lady whose child had died, she was like, yeah, that sounds good. <laughs> That's crazy, isn't it? But Solomon, in his, in his directive to split the baby, he knew that the maternal instincts of the child would kick in and that she would rather see that child be given to the lady who, is, who wasn't his mother as opposed to see it dead. And so here, uh, what she say? Uh, she says, for her bowels yearned uh, upon, her, for, uh, upon her son. And she said, oh my Lord, give her the living child in no wise slay it. And so see, she said, hey, look, it's my kid, but I would rather she raise it <laughs> than you do this to it. Let it be neither mine or thine. But the other said, let it be neither mine or thine. So you see, the, the, the mother knew, the mother's instinct was to protect that child at all costs. And so they care for their children. And if, I'll tell you this, if, if one of their kid, if, if one of their kid, if their kid has a problem, A mother as much is generally, now this is, like I said, we're speaking in some generalities here, but a mother is generally more zealous in seeking a remedy for whatever may be ailing the child. She's more apt to not take no for an answer, isn't she? <laughs> If the doctor says no, she's going to find another doctor. And if that doctor says no, she's or, or whatever the case may be, whatever it may be that the affliction is, she's going to keep searching until she finds something to help her kid out. That's just that maternal instinct and the way it works. And so um, we, we're going to look at a couple verses for that. In 2 Kings chapter 4, 19 through 20, it says, And he said unto his father, My head, my head. Uh, and this was the son of the Shunammite woman who uh, had prepared a place where Elijah and Gehazi, when they would travel through, they would 
stay there and lodge there. And, and Elijah had asked her one time and said, name me something that you want. And she, she didn't name anything that she wanted. And so he looked at her. Elisha looked at her and said, here's what's going to happen. By this time next year, you're going to have a son. Uh, and, uh, uh, and because she had not had a son yet. And, and so here in, uh, in this verse of scripture, we see the, the caring nature of, uh, of a mother, uh, taking place. Uh, cause, uh, this son that she had had, uh, with her husband, and her husband was, uh, uh older in years, uh, and so, uh, and so what would have happened in that society if she didn't have that son was eventually when her husband died, she would have been a widow. And widows had no voice in the society then. And so here we look and, and she says uh, uh, the son is out in the field at the harvest uh, with the dad. And this is a hot time of the year. And uh, and so he's out there in the field with his father. Uh, and uh, and the son says unto his father, he says, my head, my head. Uh, and the lad, uh, and he said to, the, to a lad, carry him to his mother. And when he had taken him uh, and brought him to his mother, he sat on her knees till noon. Well, when a kid's sick, they want their mama, don't they? Daddy can try to comfort, but he can't comfort like mama can. And besides that, Daddy's got to do his things too, doesn't he? Well, in this case, the child died. Of course, we know that Elisha eventually would was sought. The Shunammite woman goes to Elisha, and she uh, lets it be known that the child was laying uh, that was dead, and uh, and that she needed him to come uh, uh, to her house. And uh, Elisha's instinct initially was to send Gehazi with his uh, with his staff, and he said, "When you come to the, the when you come to the child, lay his staff down across him." But the mother, uh, she was so distraught in her grief, she was so uh, and and so lacking faith in that moment, she said, "No, no, no, Elisha, that will not do. You have." have to come. Elisha, you have to come. And so Elisha went and he prayed over the child and the child revived. We read of a Canaanite woman, don't we, in the Matthew chapter 15, she had a child who was vexed with the devil and she sought out Jesus, uh, that Jesus would come and, and would cast the devil out. And, uh, and Jesus looked at her and, and said, uh, I, I'm sent first to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and made a reference about dogs. But the lady looked at him and said, yeah, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. You have a woman who told Elisha, I'm not going to take no for an answer, Elisha. And then you have a Canaanite woman who told the Lord, I know, but I'm not taking no for an answer. And then she humbly presented herself in a way that it moved God to compassion. Motherhood's amazing, isn't it? It starts out with this intense and acute pain. I can't speak for everybody else, but I mean I can as soon as the as soon as the child's born and they cry, 
all that pain that's occurred possibly for 10 months, however many hours of labor it is, is gone, isn't it? (laughs) And your focus changes. And it goes to the caring and maternal aspects. Here's what's interesting. is, Is God uses all of the human condition to describe himself sometimes. Even the maternal aspects. Now God is not maternal. He's paternal. But he's God overall. And so we read in Isaiah chapter 49. I'm going to actually go back and read the 14th verse. Isaiah chapter 49 and verse 14. God's recounting the things he's done for for Israel. In verse 14 it says, But Zion said, The Lord hath forsaken me and hath forgotten me. And God's going to compare himself to a mother. He said, Can a woman forget her suckling child that she should not have compassion on the son of her own womb? Or the son of her womb. He says, Yea, they may forget. There are some who lack natural affection. We see that today. He says, Yea, they may forget. Yet will I not forget thee. And so God compares that to a mother not forgetting their own child. The most, the most famous ones probably, in my opinion, Matthew twenty three thirty seven. Jesus, before he's right before he's crucified, looking over Jerusalem. Crying out, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them that are sent unto thee. How often, and this is getting to that protective instinct of a mother, that caring maternal instinct that they have. He said, How often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings in times of distress? to shield them from whatever may hurt them. It's amazing when you think about in our society today that so many reject motherhood to such a degree. God gave us a a choice on the sixth day when he created the beast of the field and then he created man. And he said you can either behave as the preeminent of creation, which man was, because everything was a build-up to the creation of man, or you can condescend down to that of beast, and you can behave like beast. But even beasts know better than to discard their young. Bears are ferocious and mighty, and 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 to be feared for sure. But the worst situation you can find yourself in is between a mother bear and her cubs. Because I will promise you, certain death is probably imminent. (laughs) If that mother bear is mad enough and, and perceives you a big enough threat, she will fight the biggest grizzly bear of alive to protect her cubs. 
And so Jesus says, just like a mother hen would gather her chicks under her wings, so would I have gathered you under my wings. And not only that, but as we think about the church, the church at times should should exude all the maternal all these maternal properties. The church should exude some of them. At sometimes the church needs to exhibit more paternal properties. But I'm going to use this verse of scripture to, show, to as a justification for that statement uh, because it's long it's it's connecting back to Hagar and it's connecting back to uh, uh, to Sarah. Uh, but it says, "But Jerusalem, which is from above, right, is free." which is the mother of us all, and that's the church. Because <laughs> the church labors in pains and toils to bring forth children unto God. It should watch over in, in a protective way uh, those that are uh, those young Christians that... Uh, uh, that join the church and unite with the church, uh, and making sure that their needs are met, and making sure that they're uh, that they're learning and that they're growing. Because, folks, uh, a mother's job doesn't end the day the child's born. A, a human that's born, a baby that's born, is not like is not like an animal when it's born. You watch, you watch a, uh, some animal like a deer or a horse, they, they give birth to young or cattle, and within, a, within moments, within moments, it's already standing on its own. In some cases, it's already running. In some cases, it's already eating and uh, grazing on the grass. Uh, you look at a baby, and this was one of the things that was struck in the article, and I thought, man, if these guys only understood spiritual things, they might have a clue as to what's going on. It says, what are the advantages to, the, to, to giving birth to a child that has such an advanced brain, but such an inept body uh, at that at the moment of birth because the body's got a lot of thing, a growing to go into, a lot of maturing to go into, and the brain is already a very active and very alert. And I'll get back to my own mom and the, and the experience that I had when I was born when those forceps happened and we were in the hospital in, uh, uh, in Lexington and the doctors were saying, well, we need to remove his mastoid bone and we need to do this and we need to do that. My mom was really torn. She, uh, she was in a real state, all those instincts were kicking in. She's tried to express this to me a little bit throughout the years. You can never get it all in. But when a mom knows, a mother just knows, doesn't she? And she said, I was sitting in the hospital holding you. And she said, and your eyes were just as bright and alive as could be. And she said, and I made the decision then that we weren't doing any of that. And I'm thankful that she did. They just know, don't they? Mother just knows. You may be here today and you're lost. Well, you think, be thankful for your mother. But I want you to understand this. As, no matter how much your mother loves you, no matter how much your mother cares for you, no matter how much your mother wants to protect you, 
She may want to wrap you in bubble wrap and put a helmet on you every time you go out the door to make sure that nothing happens to you. Something that she can never do is save your soul. Only God can do that. And I said a mother's greatest fear was seeing her child die. I need to amend that statement. A mother's greatest fear is knowing her child may go to hell. You love your mother today. Then ask yourself if you know where you're going. If you don't, you want to do something that your mother will rejoice in. Fix that. <laughs> fix that. That's my message this morning. Brother, we, uh, Brother Matlock, I was going to have it. Brother Matlock, if you can pick out a song, we're going to we're going to stand and sing. Page 251, Mags of Grace. I think that's a 